Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Will testimony by Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, drive a stake into the heart of Russiagate? Nation writer Aaron Maté says, don't bet on it. The people who have peddled this conspiracy theory for two years, instead of recognizing that their moment of reckoning is coming with Mueller delivering his report, and by all accounts, it's looking like it's going to be pretty underwhelming, now we have them announcing that they're going to keep it going with new investigations. And you know, they've been saying so for, for so long, it's the beginning of the end. Well, now they're saying it's the end of the beginning. And at protests across the U.S. and world, thousands gathered to say no war, no sanctions, no coup in Venezuela. Democrats and Republicans are united in supporting the Trump invasion. Uh, it's important for them to know that there are significant numbers of people in this country who understand our responsibility to humanity, our responsibility to ourselves uh, to stand in opposition to this kind of uh, criminal uh, intervention. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Thursday's congressional testimony from Donald Trump's former fixer, attorney Michael Cohen, produced new avenues of inquiry into what may be Trump's illegal private business practices and his apparent payments to buy the silence of the porn star known as Stormy Daniels, which could bolster the possibility of obstruction of justice charges. But the day-long grilling produced little or nothing to support the narrative distributed as gospel among Democrats, U.S. spy agencies, and corporate media that Trump colluded with Russia to steal the 2016 presidential election. In contrast to Cohen's statements on Thursday and also the lines of questioning, listeners to On the Ground know that investigations have proven, for example, that there was no hack of documents at the Democratic National Committee but rather there was probably a leak from someone who downloaded correspondence on a thumb drive. We'll have more on Cohen and the Russiagate narrative later in the show. And while Cohen's public hearing grabbed headlines, real government watchdogs said that the big story of the day was introduction of the Medicare for All Act of 2019 by Representative Pramila Jayapal of Washington State. The proposed law, a House version of the Senate bill introduced by Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont last year, would cover medical, dental, hearing, and vision services while eliminating all premiums, co-pays, and deductibles. It would also bring down the cost of prescription drugs. At Wednesday's introduction of the act, which already has more than 100 co-sponsors, Jayapal told supporters, including doctors, nurses, unions, and consumer advocates, that money lobbyists from insurance companies and Big Pharma will work hard to defeat Medicare for All. So even as people die because they can't afford treatments, the top pharmaceutical companies are raking in $75 billion a year in profits. In 2018 alone, the health and insurance, medical insurance industry took in $43 billion in profits. The United Health CEO took home $83 million. The Aetna CEO took home $59 million. And the Cigna CEO took home $44 million. So when you hear, which you will hear, 
that Medicare for all is unaffordable. Just remember that the only ones who can't afford to let this bill pass are these pharma and insurance companies who stand to lose massive profits if we pass my bill. Jayapal added that even with Obamacare in effect right now, the U.S. healthcare system fails to provide quality, affordable health care as a right. Nearly 30 million Americans are uninsured, and at least 40 million more cannot afford the costs of their copays and deductibles. Climate activists also celebrated this week after Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell postponed an up-and-down vote that he had scheduled on the proposal for a Green New Deal to combat climate change. Sunrise Movement organizers said that the up-and-down vote was designed to expose and exacerbate the differences and divisions within the Democratic Party. The vote in the Senate on the Green New Deal has now been moved to later this year. Also in environmental news, Senate Republicans confirmed ex-coal lobbyist Andrew Wheeler as administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA. And on Monday, Representative Raul Grijalva, Democrat of Arizona, introduced the Grand Canyon Centennial Protection Act, a proposal that would ban uranium mining on one million acres of public lands near the Grand Canyon. Michelle Roberts, on the grounds environmental justice producer, testified before the House Appropriations Committee this week to advocate for communities that suffer from industrial pollution and other hazards. The communities that we represent are those who are impacted first and worst during industrial and natural disasters. They are the canary in the mine. The House Committee is considering the budget for the Environmental Protection Agency, including departments responsible for enforcing pollution regulations. In immigration news, thousands of migrant children suffered sexual abuse while in custody of the U.S. government over the past four years, according to Department of Health and Human Services documents released Tuesday by Florida Democratic Representative Ted Deutsch. According to the documents, more than 4,500 sexual abuse complaints were reported to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, an agency within HHS in charge of caring for unaccompanied migrant minors. Deutsch told CBS that these reported abuses started under the Obama administration, but spiked after Trump's policy of separating children from their parents. The real question is this. When the president and the administration decided to start tearing kids away from their parents, did they know that they would be traumatizing them in that way only to put them at risk in these detention centers, at risk of sexual assault by adults? Deutsch added that Congress will follow up these abuse revelations to ensure that Trump administration policies change, especially those policies that waive background checks for those employed to care for children. And the well-being of immigrants was one of the concerns when members of D.C.'s Afro-Latino community gathered Thursday night. Chantel James has more. As Black History Month closed Thursday night, The D.C. Afro-Latino Caucus hosted a panel at Mount Pleasant Library. A crowd of all ages filled the room and enjoyed refreshments before the conversation moderated by Joanna Figueroa began. Speakers were Afro-Latina women working as educators and activists here in D.C. Dr. Aisha Court, Tanjia Hope Navas, 
Alicia Sanchez-Gill, and Rosalind Damiana Lake Montero. They gave their perspectives on their own identities as Black and Hispanic, sharing from lived experience. Alicia Sanchez-Gill, Executive Director at Collective Action for Safe Spaces, talks about the challenges that have shaped her work during the dialogue. Speakers talked about the need for real understanding of the Afro-Latina experience across the African diaspora. From Northwest D.C., this is Chantal James. Finally, in culture and media, the D.C. area's famous restaurant-slash-social justice hub, Busboys and Poets, is officially opening a new location in Anacostia on March 6th, making it one of the first sit-down restaurants to locate east of the river in the district. And on the eve of International Women's Day, there will be a D.C. premiere of the film Cubanas, Mujeres, and Revolución, or Cubanas, Women, and Revolution, a documentary by Maria Torellas. That's Thursday, March 7th, 6.30 p.m. to 9 p.m. at the True Reformer Building, 1200 U Street in Northwest D.C. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn with more international news. Stay with us.
in and out of her home Never been a nigga ashamed of where I was from You gotta go out and get it, now wait for it to come Never been addicted to that coke or that rum Never took a life with a gun or harmed a human for fun But I got a few gangsters who protect me and my son You can't get into formation without information This country's in peril, too many niggas hating We think being famous is the same as reparations We think smoking weed is the same as meditation Or others are using it as a form of medication Incarceration is the new black vacation I'm trying to practice this hope with a whole lot of patience I want to feel American pride with lots of cadence We the only people on the planet taught to hate our culture While others exploit, eat off of it like vultures Stress from the inside like ulcers Racist government stretch from D.C. to Tulsa Ain't you tired of the bull and the lies? Ain't you tired of the murders and the cries? Meanwhile, Kim trailing in the sky But y'all don't wanna hear that on your music or your rhymes How you gon' matter if you think that you better? And cause you got some money that your water's more wetter Ha, ha, ha Jokes on you, why you an actor? You got less influence on your kids than the average rapper. Got the nerve to walk around with your chest poked out. Why your daughter's getting turned out and son's getting smoked out. Man, let's get these votes out so we can get these racist folks out. That was America by the Crossroads, and this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And while Michael Cohen's testimony and the so-called Russiagate scandal sucked up much of the oxygen on the Hill this week, there was actually much bigger international news happening. And our geopolitical analyst, the professor, author, and activist Gerald Horn is here to help us break it all down. And first, Gerald, I want to start with Venezuela. The war hawks of the Trump administration, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, and John Bolton have failed so far with their attempted coup and various provocations inside and on the border of Venezuela. And some observers say that this leaves Venezuela actually more vulnerable to some type of military intervention to topple the Maduro government. So what's your take on the latest in Venezuela since this attempt to force the so-called humanitarian aid failed last weekend. And and I guess as an aside, I should say the Venezuelan military said it found in one so-called aid truck barbed wire, nails, and other materials that could be used to construct barricades. Well, on that latter point, recall that some days ago, McClatchy reported that there would be an attempt to smuggle in arms under the guise of humanitarian aid. And by the way, that attempt to bring in so-called humanitarian aid did not succeed. And indeed, the leader of the opposition cabal, I'm speaking of Mr. Guaido, 
is touring South America right now. He was just in Brazil conferring with right-wing leader Bolsonaro, and it's unclear if he'll be able to return to the country, uh, given what the authorities in Caracas describe as his, quote, treasonous, unquote, activity. What appears to be happening is that there is an impasse. That is to say that it was expected that after this January 23rd turn of events, when Mr. Guaido proclaimed himself to be interim president, and he was backed up by Mr. Pence and Mr. Trump. It was thought that that would lead to a crumbling of the Maduro regime, but that has not happened. And what's left is that Washington now has to contemplate a direct military intervention, which will then split the opposition. I don't think that the European Union will be happy with that. I don't think many Latin American countries will be happy with that either. And so, quite frankly, right now there's a kind of standoff, and as long as that standoff exists, it seems to me that U.S. imperialism is losing. But on the other hand, the Venezuelan people are deprived of their own resources in the sense that the U.S. and European countries have seized their gold assets, the assets from their revenue-producing oil company that is the parent company of Citgo here. So this aid that this that the U.S. supposedly wants to offer would just be a drop in the bucket compared to what the Venezuelan people could get for themselves if they had their own resources and money. Well, that's a fair point. Uh, and speaking of Citgo, I've noticed in the press that uh, the Guaido Cabal has appointed a so-called new board of directors. It seems to me that this is where we need some of our legal eagles and the National Lawyers Guild to intervene with some sort of creative legal strategy to assist the Maduro regime against what I perceive to be an illegal takeover of a major asset of Caracas. And I trust that that will proceed sooner rather than later. In the meantime, you know, real military attacks were happening this week uh, between two states with nuclear weapons. Uh, not that saying that they use the weapons, but, you know, it's always very you know, scary when you see two nuclear powers fighting each other, and that's India and Pakistan. So in the absence of any type of global diplomatic efforts uh, that don't seem to be existing right now to tamp down this fighting, um, could this escalate? Well, let's hope not. Uh, just to bring listeners up to speed, on Valentine's Day, February 14th, some religious zealots in Kashmir which is part of Indian territory, these religious zealots who were said to have ties to Pakistan did an attack on an Indian military, and a number of Indian soldiers were killed. Uh, this led to an Indian attack on what they said was an encampment of these religious zealots. An Indian pilot was shot down, and in a gesture, the Pakistani government has said it will be releasing this Indian pilot, and hopefully that will tamp down and ratchet down tensions between the two nuclear-armed states. As suggested, the dispute goes back to Kashmir, which with the rather unfortunate and rather hasty and disorganized British withdrawal from South Asia in 1947, leading to independence for Pakistan and India, uh, the countries. That is to say, India and Pakistan had a dispute over who controls Kashmir. 
It's led to a number of wars since 1947. And I should also say there's another issue, too, which is that there are a number of Kashmiris who don't want to be part of India nor Pakistan and think that there should be a third country uh, involved in this uh, matter. Uh, the geopolitical context is that during the Cold War, the United States was allied with Pakistan and China against the Soviet Union and India. But with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States feels that Pakistan has lost a good deal of its utility, and China is in the crosshairs. And so, therefore, the United States has been edging away from Pakistan, which puts Pakistan in a very disadvantageous position. But on the other hand, it sets up a confrontation between Pakistan backed by China and India possibly backed by the United States. Well, also, Donald Trump went to Vietnam this week for another summit with North Korea's leader, and I suppose that the talks collapsed. Well, Mr. Trump suggests that North Korea has not moved as fast as he thinks they should be moving towards denuclearization, and therefore he does not feel compelled to lift the biting sanctions against the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. The DPRK dissents. It said that it was quite willing to take concrete steps towards denuclearization, or perhaps not as far as Mr. Trump wanted. And John Bomber Bolton, according to press reports, does not want any sort of agreement with the DPRK. Recall that he was briefly in the doghouse with Mr. Trump when he suggested that denuclearization of North Korea would lead to a Libya-style result in the DPRK, which is precisely what the DPRK wants to avoid by developing a nuclear arsenal. Uh, what's striking, it seems to me, in terms of this entire controversy, is that as in Venezuela, where many leading Democrats are supportive of a man they consider to be a racist, a con man, and a cheat, speaking of Mr. Trump, in the DPRK, their position may be worse in the sense that they are, in a sense, attacking Mr. Trump from the right. Uh, that is to say that Congressman Brad Sherman of Southern California, a leading Democrat, has said that Mr. Trump now should move to sanction Chinese banks and other Chinese entities. Other Democrats have suggested that Russia needs to be sanctioned because of its purported support for the DPRK. This comes in the context of tensions between Beijing and Washington over Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications giant, whose chief financial officer is being detained in Canada at the behest of the United States of America. And, of course, there are these trade talks, uh, which were supposed to be ending within the next 24 to 48 hours, but apparently will not be. And in the offing, if they do not go in the direction that Washington wants, could be increased tariffs against Chinese products and then, lurking above everything else, is this looming confrontation between Russia and the United States of America, where Russia has said that it's developing these new hypersonic missiles, and a commentator in Moscow suggested that they'll be moving nuclear submarines closer uh, to the shores of the United States. And, of course, the same commentator uh, suggested that if there's a confrontation between Russia and the United States, that the Pentagon, which is within a stone's throw of where you're sitting, uh, will be hit, not to mention Camp David. So that's something to think about. 
Well, I know we've given people a lot of background and context to that whole Russia scenario in the sense that there are already NATO and U.S. missiles ringing the, the former Soviet Union or Russia now because they've been placed there by countries that used to be a part of the Soviet bloc, but now they have become part of NATO. And so there are a lot of missiles and so-called defense shields ringing Russia. Oh, clearly. I mean, okay. the United States has moved unilaterally out of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement, which we've talked about more than once on these airwaves. Uh, a Polish leader has talked about uh, establishing a Fort Trump in Poland, which would be another mortal danger for uh, Moscow. So it's no question that perhaps under pressure once again from the Democrats, Mr. Trump is engaging in saber-rattling to show that he's not a puppet of Putin, and this has led to this increased tension and confrontation. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. carry him. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go into this. Yeah, yeah, this is Gorilla. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go get the bag. Yeah, yeah, or I'ma get the pad. Yeah, yeah, I'm so cold like, yeah. Yeah, I'm so dull like, yeah. We gon' blow like, yeah. What I'm whipping up, look how I'm geeking up. I'm so pretty. I'm on Gucci. I'm so pretty. I'm on Giddy. Watch me move. This is Sally. That's a tool. On my Kodak. Black. Ooh, know that. Follow and listen. You, you motherfuckers owe me.
terrified that there will be an invasion of Venezuela and that this country will use it to maintain and enhance its grip on South America. And uh, this has been going on since the Monroe Doctrine. There's nothing new about it. There's nothing just Trumpian about it. Something that this government has wanted for a long, long time. And Maduro and uh, Fidel were able to withstand. And now I'm afraid that they won't be able to withstand. I'm really scared. So, do you think that they're going after uh, Venezuela because it's a social, well, you know, it's a socialist-inspired uh, government? Of course that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, the two, the two big resources of Venezuela for South America, or for the world, would be oil and the experience of socialism as a functioning government. So, yes, the U.S. did this to the USSR. It very clearly did this to the USSR from the time immemorial. The industrials came back from the war in 1945 and this is a quote they said we got two problems Russia abroad and labor at home they were really the same problem because the problems labor so they're fighting the working class as much as they can and anybody that can even come close to a functioning socialist government is in the crosshairs of this United States okay thank you, thank you. hi I'm here from Pacifica Radio I'm just talking to people about why they came out to the rally today so just tell me your name, group, and why you came out today. Uh, my name is Garrett. I'm with Pan African Community Action. You know, I'm just out here to uh, show solidarity and support, and get our voices out there and let the uh, let the powers that be know that you know, uh, and the people know that other folks realize that the United States intentions are not what they say or at least will harm the people of Venezuela and we support the uh, you know democratically elected president and you know we got to come out here and show solidarity so we came from DC yeah okay so why do you think that the United States is targeting Venezuela geostrategic like uh, oil you know and the example of socialism uh, you know uh, feeding the poor, um, educating the poor um, is a threat. You know, when an existing state does that, I mean, you don't have to do that to become a target of the United States government, but especially when, when that example exists, then uh, they're going to try, uh, you know, every maneuver and tactic in their, in their arsenal to, uh, to destroy it, you know, to bring it, bring it to hill, as Hillary Clinton would say. Ajamu Baraka, National Organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace. We're here because we believe it's important that we stand in solidarity with the people of Venezuela. 
uh, so the people in Venezuela understand that there are people in this country they are opposed to this uh, blatant white supremacist gangster move on their nation so we know that uh, Democrats and Republicans are united in supporting the Trump invasion uh, it's important for them to know that there are significant numbers of people in this country who understand our responsibility to humanity, our responsibility to ourselves uh, to stand in opposition to this kind of uh, criminal uh, intervention. So, a lot of the people haven't really uh, stressed the uh, kind of the white supremacist nature of it, even on the left. Um, talk a little bit about that, your analysis. Well, you know, that's really been been our framing, uh, because you're right, people are not thinking about this in those terms, and it really is a reflection of the degree in which white supremacist ideology has been internalized and normalized to the point it's become invisible. Here you have the audacity of white leadership in Europe and the U.S. determining the political leadership in Venezuela. What gives them the right to do that? There's no legal basis, clearly no moral basis. What gives them the right is white privilege. They believe that they have the, the right to, in fact, uh, shape the lives and destiny of people around the world. If that's not a 21st century uh, expression of white supremacy, of the white man's burden, I don't know what else could be. So no, we've got to, we've got to expose the, the racial component of this. That's why we say we are opposed to the U.S., EU, NATO axis of domination. Imperialism is a system, but it also is a racialized system also. Uh, have you gotten any reports today about what's actually happening on this these border, uh, I don't know, staged events or, or what, what's happening? Have you gotten any reports? We've been watching very closely. The last um, report that I saw was there's still a, a series of uh, uh, provocations. There was um, uh, apparently one of the trucks they had lined up to go into Venezuela uh, was, was set on fire on the Colombian side. So I'm not sure what that means, but it's clear that you know, any attempt to penetrate Venezuela uh, from Colombia is a violation of international law. And so we've got to stress that even though we know we're dealing with gangsters, we still need for people to understand that there's no legal basis for this. This is straight up uh, piracy. I've been thinking about the fact that so much of what the United States has been doing has been in the Middle East and it just seems like they switched hemispheres to take that same type of kind of what you call gangster <laughs> actions to our own hemisphere. I mean, I've been wondering like how people react differently, especially our Latino brothers and sisters, to have this happen here to people who look like a lot of us. You know, that was really one of our main concerns. We knew that the U.S. was consumed with the so-called Middle East. Uh, but we knew they were coming back toward Latin America. And we knew they had to come back because of the progress be was, that was being made in this region in terms of putting in place progressive uh, governments that were attempting to experiment with how to transform their societies. So we were trying to get people uh, aware of the fact that we had a responsibility to protect these states, to protect these exper experiments. But before we can completely do that work, 
you know, uh, by 2011, 2012, the Obama administration began to refocus on Latin America. And so by 2014, uh, the Obama folks decided that uh, Venezuela was a uh, national threat to the U.S. And then they were a national threat and are a national threat, not because they have oil, but because of the model that they are trying to develop, the kind of influence they have uh, throughout the region. They have the, the full, the, the doctrine of full spectrum dominance is one that says any state that, that provides a, a, a threat to U.S. hegemony in, the re, in any region becomes a state that's going to be in the crosshairs of U.S. Uh, destabilization. So Venezuela is key to trying to reverse all of the progress that's been made in Latin America and the Caribbean over the last two decades. I mean, when you look historically and you look at, I mean, just even starting with the Philippines, I mean, if you kind of look at these, what do you, why, why don't you think uh, the American public kind of recognizes the pattern by now? I mean, even in my lifetime, there's been these series of things where it's, they've been, wars have been started by, for lies or by lies. But why, why do you, why do you think that Americans really kind of zone out when, you know, I mean, there are a lot of people out here today, but just how come you think that Americans don't really seem to get out in the street? I think part of it is, is a, a reflection of the weakness of the anti-imperialist and anti-war movements in the U.S., uh, a general, general weakness of the progressive movements in this country. But it's also a reflection of the, the decades of constant pro-American, pro-imperialist propaganda. And the fact that these uh, adventures, these military interventions, even though they are devastating to the people who are on the receiving end of them, there's no impact on the people in the U.S. People can go about their business as usual with no consequence. The only ones that suffer are the ones who are the, are the poor and the working class who make up the bulk of the military personnel. They're the ones coming back with a PTSD and all kinds of issues. But for the, for the vast majority of the people in this country, there's no consequence for U.S. criminality. They can live in their little bubble uh, and not worry about the devastation that their government, in their name, is waging against people around the around the around the world. Okay. Anything you want to add? We've got to organize. It's not about just Venezuela. It's also about Haiti. It's about all of the nations who are trying to come out from under the boot of U.S. domination. This is about a dying but dangerous system in the U.S. and in Western Europe. And we've got to understand that as they are losing their legitimacy, they are more and more dependent on the use of force and violence. And all of us who believe in human rights, who believe in peace, we're going to be in the crosshairs of these criminals. Okay. Thank you. My name is uh, George Johnson. I live here in Baltimore, and I'm opposed to uh, the U.S. foreign policy, which over the years has been getting worse and worse. It's right now, the uh, actions in Venezuela are blatant imperialism. It's uh, 
a phony humanitarian ploy to steal their oil of Venezuela. And I support I've, I support Chavez's uh, approach to government and Maduro as well, even with their problems. I think they're much better. Uh, more appropriate for humanity than people like Elliot Abrams and war criminals like we offer. So I had, even though, you know, our efforts sometimes seem futile, I couldn't sit at home today. I had to be out here. That's what I believe in, heart and soul. You have been listening to voices from the No Coup, No Sanctions, No War on Venezuela rally held in Baltimore. February 23rd, 2019. And before that was This is America by Childish Gambino. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. This is Iraq. Look at us blowing up. Nobody showing up. Nobody owing up. Hadal Iraq. بدايتك اخرتك جوازك اخرتك بس دير بالك لك لا تغلط This is Iraq Look at us blowing up Look how I'm throwing up Prime Minister on the up Yeah, this is Iraq Corrupt in the area Farsi hysteria Saying we gon' take care of ya Nah nah I'ma get shot for this Nah nah You might get blocked from this Nah nah I'ma go train a kid Nah nah Wash off the innocence Nah nah Sense for blood like yeah Yeah I'm so bored like yeah Yeah Let's go blow like yeah Braka Iraq. Look at us blowing up. Yeah. Nobody showing up. Nobody owing up. Had al Iraq. Bidaitak akhirtak. Jawazak akhirtak. Bazdir balak lak la tighlat. Look how they freaking out. Take your clothes off. Rape. Taking photo. Rape. I'm so petty. They don't get it. They're immune. This is telly. That's the news. Media blackout. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, Thursday's congressional testimony from Donald Trump's former fixer, attorney Michael Cohen, produced new avenues of inquiry into what may be Trump's illegal private business practices and his apparent payments to buy the silence of the porn star known as Stormy Daniels which could bolster the possibility of obstruction of justice charges. But the day-long grilling produced little or nothing to support the narrative distributed as gospel among Democrats, U.S. spy agencies, and corporate media that Trump colluded with Russia to steal the 2016 election. Joining me now to help us sort through what is new and old news, the real and fake news of Cohen's testimony, is Aaron Maté, contributor to The Nation. Welcome to On the Ground, Aaron. And so if we want to do the top five facts from Cohen's testimony that debunked Russiagate, what would your top five be? First, first of all, thanks for having me. The first place where I would start is the fact that Cohen said in his opening statement, I have no direct evidence of collusion. So that's significant for many reasons. One, I mean, he was 
Trump's fixer very close to him. And here he is now saying on the record that he has no direct evidence of collusion with Russia. Now, he did go on to say that he has his suspicions, you know, and we can get into those if we want. But I think the fact that he himself, who would be well-placed to witness any Trump-Russia collusion if it had happened, is saying on the record that he did not witness it, is significant. And it's all the more significant because it also means that he is debunking basically the Steele dossier, this uh, infamous collection of intelligence reports paid for by the Democrats that accused uh, Trump and Russia of having this grand conspiracy and Russia having blackmail over Trump, and which stated that Cohen went to Prague to pay off the Russian hackers, the uh, Russian hackers who allegedly stole the Democratic Party emails. Cohen testified on the record that uh, he has never been to Prague. And so he shot down that aspect of the Steele dossier. And that that aspect of the Steele dossier is one of its most core claims. So right there, I think you have two really huge things. You have Cohen uh, saying, I saw no evidence of Trump-Russia collusion, and also knocking down the Steele dossier. Okay, what's next? You'll recall recently uh, BuzzFeed News had that huge story saying that uh, Trump had told Cohen to lie to Congress about the failed effort to develop a, a Trump Tower in Moscow. Well, Cohen said on the record that, uh, no, Trump never told me to lie. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Trump never directly told me to lie. Now, he did uh, go on to say that he thinks Trump wanted him to lie in his own way, but that basically amounts to his interpretation of what he thinks Trump's wishes were. Uh, he makes no allusion to any kind of prodding from Trump to tell him to lie to Congress. And you'll recall when this uh, story came out, the, the, the core claim of the BuzzFeed story was that Trump told Cohen to lie to Congress and that Mueller has evidence of that. Well, Cohen saying on the record that Trump did not tell me to lie, that, that basically is also debunking uh, that story as well. So we have yet another huge bombshell that was treated when it came out as being explosive and it was going to lead to impeachment, now being debunked by the source himself. Mm, okay. And so Cohen was central to all three of these narratives that received like major treatment in, in corporate media. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, again, uh, Cohen is the guy, according to the Steele dossier, that was in Prague to, to pay off the Russian hackers. Well, he says that's not true. Uh, Cohen was allegedly directed by Trump to lie to Congress about a deal that went nowhere uh, in, in, in Moscow. And Cohen says on the record that he was not directed to lie to Congress. Uh, and Cohen is also Trump's fixer, and he's telling Congress he has no evidence of collusion. And so it's, it's um, you know, what it amounts to is, I mean, we heard Cohen say things about Trump that are not favorable to Trump. It, it, he called him a racist. He said he's been shady in his real estate and tax dealings. But these are all things that we knew. And, you know, um, while it's interesting to hear that about, about our president, I mean, to compare what we heard from Cohen to what we've been hearing for two years in this nonstop Trump-Russia conspiracy frenzy, I mean, everything Cohen offered on the record undermines it. Well, I know when I was listening to the testimony, a lot of my reaction was from the questions themselves and not just what Cohen said. So. I was really listening very intently to what Debbie Wasserman Schultz was asking him and her questions 
captured just a lot of the original narrative around Russia. People who we've had on our show, Veterans Intelligence for Sanity, Bill Benny was part of that group, and they've basically debunked the whole idea that there was even a hack. You know, so a lot of what came out in the hearing to me was stuff that had already been kind of challenged and just totally destroyed in terms of it being non-factual. As you likely know, I served as the chair of the Democratic National Committee at the time of the Russian hacks and when Russia weaponized the messages that it had stolen. But I want to be clear. My questions are not about the harm done to any individual by WikiLeaks and the Russians. It's about the possible and likely harm to the United States of America and our democracy. I have a series of questions that I hope will connect more of these dots. Mr. Cohen, is it your testimony that Mr. Trump had advanced knowledge of the Russia WikiLeaks release of the DNC's emails? I cannot answer that in a yes or no. He had advanced notice that there was going to be a dump of emails, but at no time did I hear the specificity of what those emails were going to be. But you do testify today that he had advanced knowledge of their, of their inter- imminent release. That, that is what I had stated in my testimony. And so that was Debbie Wasserman Schultz asking her questions in the hearing. And related to that, this whole narrative about WikiLeaks still going on two years after the fact, uh, some people were asking Cohen about the tip that Roger Stone allegedly gave Trump. Yeah, that's a very good one. Yeah, to tip them off about the WikiLeaks publishing these emails from the DNC. And I think one of the Republican lawmakers actually held up a piece of paper saying, but, but you know, WikiLeaks had already published the fact that they were going to make this drop, you know? And so it wasn't like this was some type of new information or some, some big scoop because WikiLeaks had already, I think, either published or put out the fact that this drop of, of new emails was coming. Right. So, uh, this takes us to number four, uh, I think is a great place to go to because, yeah, so this was uh, deemed as explosive, the fact that Michael Cohen says that Roger Stone called Donald Trump and told him that he had talked to Julian Assange and that Assange was going to drop the Democratic Party emails. But there's a few things there. First of all, Assange and WikiLeaks have denied that Roger Stone ever talked to Assange, and they've denied that again. So it is quite uh, likely, uh, like at least by all evidence we have, that Stone, if he in fact told Trump this, he was lying. Uh, and second of all, the as you say, the email, uh, the Democratic Party emails that Stone claims he knew about. Well, everybody knew that those emails were coming because WikiLeaks had announced them as early as June that they were going to be releasing Hillary Clinton emails. So, I mean, whether Cohen is telling the truth or not, and you know, Roger Stone has denied it. Uh, WikiLeaks has denied speaking to Roger Stone. I believe the president's attorneys have denied that claim from Cohen. So who knows? But even if he's right, basically, we have Stone telling Trump information that is already public. And the fact that Donald Trump has to hear it from Roger Stone and tells me that, I mean, that Trump didn't have any connection with WikiLeaks or Russia. Otherwise, he would have heard it from them. So he's hearing it all of a sudden from Roger Stone, and, uh, and that's his supposed connection to WikiLeaks in Russia. I mean, so even there, none of it helps the conspiracy theory, and if anything, it only hurts it because basically 
even if it happened, he's, he's just hearing from Stone information that's already public. Where do you want to go for number five? There are a few possibilities, but what's your number five? Why don't you go ahead and, uh, and I'm happy to comment on it. Well, I was interested in the repeated innuendo that there were negotiations with the Kremlin for a Trump Tower in Moscow. And yes, that's very good. That is very, very good. Yes, yes. Because, <laughs> and this is, this is treated as like established fact across the media that there were these negotiations for, for Trump Tower. Nobody looks at what actually happened, which is basically Trump signed a non-binding letter of intent. Uh, they, uh, they got a uh, letter from a Russian bank agreeing to help try to spearhead the project, but there was never any financing. There was never any Russian government uh, approval. The only role of the Kremlin here comes when Michael Cohen gets frustrated with his colleague Felix Sater. Because uh, Felix Sater's promising all the stuff. He's promising meetings. He's promising financing with Russians. It's not coming through. So Cohen writes to like a general uh, email address at the Kremlin trying to, trying to get answers himself. And uh, the Kremlin calls him back and says, sorry, we can't help you out. But if you want to come to this St. Petersburg uh, business forum we're having in June, you know, feel free to attend. And, you know, so... And meanwhile, the Trump team drafted, a, got like someone to, to draft a mock-up of what the Trump Tower might look like. But in terms of like negotiations, there's no negotiations with the Kremlin, and there's not even really any negotiations with Russians because nobody ever you know lined up or even really considered giving it financing. No one gave it any approval. So what's called the negotiations really is just basically Michael Cohen and Felix Sater fighting with each other, and Cohen getting mad at Felix Sater because he's making. Cohen look bad in front of Donald Trump because the deal is going nowhere. And you have Cohen briefing Trump and other people about how it's going, but in terms of what there was even to tell them, that all counts is not very much because the deal never went anywhere beyond this letter of intent. Okay. Well, there you have our five facts from the Cohen testimony that debunk Russiagate. So, Aaron, where do you think this is going now, this uh, investigation either in Congress or I suppose, you know, yeah, in Congress, I mean, you can't really preview what Mueller has, but I mean, I suppose that's supposed to drop soon also. Well, I think the what we can predict about what Mueller has is very much influencing where the rest, where this is going elsewhere, because right now we have reports that Mueller is wrapping up, you know, that Mueller is set to deliver his report in the coming weeks. And we've seen moves already indicating that that's happening. Certain people on Mueller's staff have left. They're winding down certain cases. And so if that's the case, if Mueller is indeed wrapping up, then he will be doing so without having indicted a single American for a conspiracy with Russia to win the election. In other words, they have failed to indict a single person for the chief focus of his mandate, whether there was a conspiracy between Trump and Russia. And because of that, I think it's starting to set in that this Trump-Russia conspiracy we've been hearing about for for two years is not going to pan out. And that's why you're having people like Adam Schiff, uh, this uh, Democrat who now chairs the House Intelligence Committee, announcing that there's going to be a new phase of the Trump-Russia investigation and that he's going to basically continue it. He's suggesting that Mueller hasn't gone far enough. So basically, the people who have peddled this conspiracy theory for two years, instead of uh, 
recognizing that their moment of reckoning is coming with Mueller delivering his report. And by all accounts, it's looking like it's going to be pretty underwhelming, as indicated by the fact he hasn't indicted anybody for the conspiracy he's investigating yet. Now we have them announcing that they're going to keep it going with new investigations. And they've been saying so for so long, it's the beginning of the end. Well, now they're saying it's the end of the beginning. So basically what they're doing is they're just, they're doubling down and they're refusing to acknowledge that the the outcome they've been promising and preparing everybody for for two years is not going to happen. And, you know, I think for people who actually want to defeat Trump in 2020, that's a dangerous prospect because as I've been warning from the beginning of this whole thing, I don't think we're going to get Trump on a conspiracy theory. The way to confront Trump is, is on his actual policies and to provide a real, a real resistance, a real opposition, a real alternative, not this incessant focus on a conspiracy theory that, you know, after two years has turned out to be basic. Well, I think I might have to leave it there, but I hope that we can speak again as the, the shoe drops or doesn't drop in the, in the in the coming weeks. I've been speaking with Aaron Mate, contributor for the Nation. Thank you for joining me today, Aaron. Thanks for having me. And that will do it for today's show. And I thank my guests, Aaron Mate and Gerald Horn, and all the activists I spoke to out in the rain and cold in Baltimore on Saturday. And thank you to our contributors, Chantel James and Michelle Roberts. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. We're on Facebook and Twitter under On the Ground Show, and we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. And you can subscribe to On the Ground on Patreon. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.